0: Question 88, Part 2 of Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde, Trieties on the Cardinal of Virtues, The Virtue of Justice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde, Trieties on the Cardinal of Virtues, the Virtue of Justice by St. Thomas Aquinas Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province Question 88. Of Vows in Twelve Articles Part 2. Articles 7-12 Seventh Article. Whether a vow is solemnized by the reception of holy orders and by the profession of a certain rule. Objection 1. It would seem that a vow is not solemnized by the reception of holy orders and by the profession of a certain rule. As stated above in Article 1, a vow is a promise made to God. Now external actions pertaining to a solemnity seem to be directed not to God, but to men. Therefore, they are related to vows accidentally, and consequently... A solemnization of this kind is not proper to circumstance of vow. Objection to further. Whatever belongs to the condition of a thing would seem to be applicable to all in which that thing is found. Now many things may be the subject of a vow which have no connection, either with the holy orders or to any particular rule, as when a man vows a pilgrimage or something of the kind therefore the solemnizing that takes place in the reception of holy orders or in the profession of a certain rule does not belong to the condition of a vow objection three further a solemn vow seems to be the same as a public vow now many other vows may be made in public besides that which is pronounced in receiving holy orders or in professing a certain rule which latter moreover may be made in private. Therefore, not only these vows are solemn. On the contrary, those vows alone are an impediment to the contract of marriage, and a null marriage if it be contracted, which is the effect of a solemn vow, as we shall state further on in the third part of this work. Confer the Supplementum, Question 53, Article 2. I answer that, the manner in which a thing is solemnized depends on its nature, conditio. Thus, when a man takes up arms, he solemnizes the fact that one way, namely, with a certain display of horses and arms and a concourse of soldiers, while a marriage is solemnized in another way, namely, the array of the bridegroom and bride and the gathering of their kindred. Now a vow is a promise made to God, wherefore the solemnization of a vow consists in something spiritual pertaining to God, that is, in some spiritual blessing or consecration which, in accordance with the institution of the apostles, is given when a man makes profession of observing a certain rule, in the second degree after the reception of holy orders, as Dionysius states, in the ecclesiastical hierarchy, 6. The reason of this is that the solemnization is not wont to be employed save when a man gives himself up entirely to some particular thing. For the nuptial solemnization takes place only when the marriage is celebrated, and when the bride and bridegroom mutually deliver the power over their bodies to one another. In like manner, a vow is solemnized when a man devotes himself to the divine ministry by receiving holy orders, or embraces the state of perfection by renouncing the world and his own will by the profession of a certain rule. Reply to Objection 1 This kind of solemnization regards not only men, but also God, insofar as it is accompanied by a spiritual consecration or blessing, of which God is the author, though man is the minister, according to Numbers 6, verse 27. They shall invoke my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Hence a solemn vow is more binding with God than a simple vow, and he who breaks a solemn vow sins more grievously. When it is said that a simple vow is no less binding than a solemn vow, this refers to the fact that the transgressor of either commits a mortal sin. Reply to Objection 2 It is not customary to solemnize particular acts, but the embracing of a new state, as we have said above. Hence when a man vows particular deeds, such as a pilgrimage or some special fast, such a vow is not competent to be solemnized, but only such a vow whereby a man entirely devotes himself to the divine ministry or service. And yet many particular works are included under this vow as under a universal. Reply to Objection 3 Through being pronounced in public, vows may have a certain human solemnity, but not a spiritual and divine solemnity, as the aforesaid vows have, even when they are pronounced before a few persons. Hence, the publicity of a vow differs from its solemnization. Eighth Article whether those who are subject to another's power are hindered from taking vows. Objection 1 It would seem that those who are subject to another's power are not hindered from taking vows. The lesser bond is surpassed by the greater. Now, the obligation of one man subject to another is a lesser bond than a vow whereby one is under an obligation to God. Therefore, Those who are subject to another's power are not hindered from taking vows. Objection 2 further. Children are under their parents' power. Yet children may make religious profession even without the consent of their parents. Therefore, one is not hindered from taking vows through being subject to another's power. Objection 3 further. To do is more than to promise. But religious who are under the power of their superiors can do certain things, such as to say some psalms or abstain from certain things. Much more, therefore, seemingly, can they promise such things to God by means of vows. Objection for further, whoever does what he cannot do lawfully sins. But subjects do not sin by taking vows, since nowhere do we find this forbidden. Therefore it would seem that they can lawfully take vows. On the contrary, it is commanded in Numbers 30, verses 4 and 6, that if a woman vow anything, being in her father's house, and yet but a girl in age, she is not bound by the vow, unless her father consent, and the same is said there, in Numbers 30, verses 7 and 9, of the woman that has a husband. Therefore, in like manner of other persons that are subject to another's power cannot bind themselves by a vow. I answer that, as stated above in Article 1. A vow is a promise made to God. Now no man can firmly bind himself by a promise to do what is in another's power but only to that which is entirely in his own power. Now whoever is subject to another, as to the matter wherein he is subject to him, it does not lie in his power to do as he will, but it depends on the will of the other. And therefore, without the consent of his superior, he cannot bind himself firmly by a vow in those matters wherein he is subject to another. Reply to objection one, nothing but what is virtuous can be the subject of a promise made to God, as stated above in article two. Now it is contrary to virtue for a man to offer to God that which belongs to another, as stated above in question 86, article three. Hence the conditions necessary for a vow are not altogether ensured. When a man who is under another's power vows that which is in that other's power, except under the condition that he whose power it concerns does not gainsay it. Reply to Objection 2. As soon as a man comes of age, if he be a freeman, he is in his own power in all matters concerning his person, for instance with regard to binding himself by vow to enter religion, or with regard to contracting marriage. But he is not in his own power as regards the arrangements of the household, so that in these matters he cannot vow anything that shall be valid without the consent of his father a slave through being in his master's power even as regards his personal deeds cannot bind himself by vow to enter religion since this would withdraw him from his master's service reply to objection three a religious is subject to his superior as to his actions connected with his profession of his rule. Wherefore, even though one may be able to do something now and then, when one is not being occupied with other things by one's superior, yet since there is no time when his superior cannot occupy him with something, no vow of a religious stands without the consent of his superior, as neither does the vow of a girl while in her father's house without his consent, nor of a wife without the consent of her husband. Reply to Objection 4. Although the vow of one who is subject to another's power does not stand without the consent of the one to whom he is subject, he does not sin by vowing, because his vow is understood to contain the requisite condition, providing, namely, that his superior approve or do not gainsay it. Ninth Article. WHETHER CHILDREN CAN BIND THEMSELVES BY VOW TO ENTER RELIGION OBJECTION 1 It would seem that children cannot bind themselves by vow to enter religion. Since a vow requires deliberation of the mind, it is fitting that those alone should vow who have the use of reason. But this is lacking in children, just as in imbeciles and madmen. men. Therefore, Just as imbeciles and madmen cannot bind themselves to anything by vow, so neither, seemingly, can children bind themselves by vow to enter religion. Objection to, further, that which can be validly done by one cannot be annulled by another. Now a vow to enter religion, made by a boy or girl before the age of puberty, can be revoked by the parents or guardian, Therefore, it seems that a boy or girl cannot validly make a vow before the age of fourteen. Objection three further, according to the rule of Blessed Benedict in chapter fifty eight and a statute of Innocent the Fourth, a year's probation is granted to those who enter religion, so that probation may precede the obligation of the vow. Therefore, it seems unlawful before the year of probation For children to be bound by vow to enter religion. On the contrary, that which is not done aright is invalid without being annulled by anyone. But the vow pronounced by a maiden, even before attaining the age of puberty, is valid, unless it be annulled by her parents within a year. Therefore, even before attaining to puberty, Children can lawfully and validly be bound by a vow to enter religion. I answer that, as may be gathered from what has been said above in Article 7, vows are of two kinds, simple and solemn. And since, as stated in the same article, the solemnization of a vow consists in a spiritual blessing and consecration bestowed through the ministry of the Church It follows that it comes under the church's dispensation. Now a simple vow takes its efficacy from the deliberation of the mind, whereby one intends to put oneself under an obligation. That such an obligation be of no force may happen in two ways. First, through defect of reason, as in madmen and imbeciles, who cannot bind themselves by vow so long as they remain in a state of madness or imbecility. Secondly, through the maker of a vow being subject to another's power, as stated above in Article 8. Now these two circumstances concur in children before the age of puberty, because in most instances they are lacking in reason, and besides are naturally under the care of their parents or guardians in place of their parents. Wherefore, in both events, their vows are without force. It happens, however, through a natural disposition, which is not subject to human laws, that the use of reason is accelerated in some, albeit few, who on this account are said to be capable of guile, and yet they are not, for this reason, exempt in any way from the care of their parents for this care is subject to human law, which takes into account that which is of most frequent occurrence. Accordingly, we must say that boys or girls who have not reached the years of puberty and have not obtained the use of reason can nowise bind themselves to anything by vow. If, however, they attain the use of reason before reaching the years of puberty, they can for their own part bind themselves by vow, but their vows can be annulled by their parents under whose care they are still subject. Yet no matter how much they be capable of guile before the years of puberty, they cannot be bound by a solemn religious vow on account of the Church's decree, which considers the majority of cases. But after the years of puberty have been reached, they can bind themselves by religious vows, simple or solemn, without the consent of their parents. Reply to Objection 1. This argument avails in the case of children who have not yet reached the use of reason, for their vows are then invalid, as stated above. Reply to Objection 2. The vows of persons subject to another's power contain an implied condition, namely that they not be annulled by the superior. This condition renders them licit and valid if it is fulfilled as stated above. Reply to Objection 3. This argument avails in the case of solemn vows which are taken in profession. Tenth Article Whether vows admit of dispensation Objection 1. It would seem that vows are not subject to dispensation. It is less to have a vow commuted than to be dispensed from keeping it. But a vow cannot be commuted according to Leviticus 27 verses 9 and 10. A beast that may be sacrificed to the Lord, if any one shall vow, shall be holy and cannot be changed, neither a better for a worse nor a worse for a better. Much less, therefore, do vows admit of dispensation. Objection to further. No man can grant a dispensation in matters concerning the natural law and in the divine precepts, especially those of the first table, since these aim directly at the love of God, which is the last end of the precepts. Now the fulfillment of a vow is a matter of the natural law, and is commanded by the divine law as shown above in article 3, and belongs to the precepts of the first table, since it is an act of religion. Therefore, vows do not admit of dispensation. Objection 3 further. The obligation of a vow is based on the fidelity which a man owes to God, as stated above in article 3. But no man can dispense in such matter as this. Neither, therefore, can anyone grant dispensation from a vow. On the contrary, that which proceeds from the common will of many has apparently greater stability than that which proceeds from the individual will of some one person. Now the law which derives its force from the common will admits of dispensation by a man. Therefore, it seems that vows also admit of dispensation by a man. I answer that. The dispensation from a vow is to be taken in the same sense as a dispensation given in the observance of a law because as stated above in the pars prima question 96 article 6 and question 97 article 4, a law is made with an eye to that which is good in the majority of instances. But since in certain cases this is not good, there is need for someone to decide that in that particular case the law is not to be observed. This is, properly speaking, to dispense in the law, for a dispensation would seem to denote a commensurate distribution or application of some common thing to those that are contained under it, in the same way as a person is said to dispense food to a household. In like manner, a person who takes a vow makes a law for himself as it were, and binds himself to do something which in itself and in the majority of cases is a good. But it may happen that in some particular case this is simply evil or useless or a hindrance to a greater good, and this is essentially contrary to that which is the matter of a vow, as is clear from what has been said above in Article 2. Therefore it is necessary in such a case to decide that the vow is not to be observed and if it be decided absolutely that a particular vow is not to be observed, this is called a dispensation from that vow. But if some other obligation be imposed in lieu of that which was to have been observed, the vow is said to be commuted. Hence it is less to commute a vow than to dispense from a vow. Both, however, are in the power of the Church. Reply to Objection 1 An animal that could be lawfully sacrificed was deemed holy from the very moment that it was the subject of a vow, being, as it were, dedicated to the worship of God, and for this reason it cannot be changed. Even so, neither may one now exchange for something better or worse that which one has vowed, if it already be consecrated, for example, a chalice or a house. On the other hand, an animal that could not be sacrificed, though not being the lawful matter of a sacrifice, could and had to be bought back, as the law requires. Even so, vows can be commuted now if no consecration has intervened. Reply to objection to Even as man is bound by natural law and divine precept to fulfill his vow, so too is he bound under the same heads to obey the laws or commands of his superiors. And yet when he is dispensed from keeping a human law, this does not involve disobedience to that human law, for this would be contrary to the natural law and the divine command. But it amounts to this, that what was law is not law in this particular case. Even so, when a superior grants a dispensation that which was contained under a vow is by his authority no longer so contained, insofar as he decides that in this case such and such a thing is not fitting matter for a vow. Consequently, when an ecclesiastical superior dispenses someone from a vow, he does not dispense him from keeping a precept of the natural or of the divine law, but he pronounces a decision on a matter to which a man had bound himself of his own accord and of which he was unable to consider every circumstance. Reply to Objection 3 The fidelity we owe to God does not require that we fulfill that which it would be wrong or useless to vow, or which would be an obstacle to the greater good whereunto the dispensation from that vow would conduce. Hence the dispensation from a vow is not contrary to the fidelity due to God. Eleventh Article Whether it is possible to be dispensed from a solemn vow of continency Objection 1 It would seem that it is possible to be dispensed from a solemn vow of continency. As stated above, one reason for granting a dispensation from a vow is if it be an obstacle to a greater good. But a vow of continency, even though it be solemn, may be an obstacle to a greater good, since the common good is more godlike than the good of an individual. Now one man's continency may be an obstacle to the good of the whole community, for instance, in the case where, if certain persons who have vowed continency were to marry, the peace of their country might be procured. Therefore, it seems that it is possible to be dispensed, even from a solemn vow of continency. Objection to further Religion is a more excellent virtue than chastity. Now if a man vows an act of religion, for example, to offer sacrifice to God, he can be dispensed from that vow. Much more, therefore, can he be dispensed from the vow of continency, which is about an act of chastity. Objection 3 further. Just as the observance of a vow of abstinence may be a source of danger to the person, so too may be the observance of a vow of continency. Now one who takes a vow of abstinence can be dispensed from that vow if it prove a source of danger to his body. Therefore, for the same reason, one may be dispensed from a vow of continency. Objection For further. Just as the vow of continency is a part of the religious profession whereby the vow is solemnized, so also are the vows of poverty and obedience but it is possible to be dispensed from the vows of poverty and obedience, as in the case of those who are appointed bishops after making profession. Therefore, it seems that it is possible to be dispensed from a solemn vow of continency. On the contrary, it is written, in Ecclesiasticus 26, verse 20, No price is worthy of a continent soul. Further, at the end of the decretal, um ad monasterium, it is stated that the renouncing of property and the keeping of chastity is so bound up with the monastic rule that not even the sovereign pontiff can dispense from its observance. I answer that three things may be considered in a solemn vow of continency. First, the matter of the vow, namely, continency. Secondly, the perpetuity of the vow, namely, when a person binds himself by vow to the perpetual observance of chastity. Thirdly, the solemnity of the vow. Accordingly, some, such as William of Auxerre, say that the solemn vow cannot be a matter of dispensation on account of the continency itself for which no worthy price can be found, as is stated by the authority quoted above. The reason for this is assigned by some to the fact that by continency man overcomes a foe within himself, or to the fact that by continency man is perfectly conformed to Christ in respect of purity, both of body and soul. But this reason does not seem to be cogent, since the goods of the soul, such as contemplation and prayer, far surpass the goods of the body, and still more conform us to God, and yet one may be dispensed from a vow of prayer or contemplation. Therefore, continency itself absolutely considered seems no reason why the solemn vow thereof cannot be the matter of dispensation, especially seeing that the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 7.34 exhorts us to be continent on account of contemplation when he says that the unmarried woman thinketh on the things of God, and since the end is of more account than the means. Consequently, others, like Albert the Great, find the reason for this in the perpetuity and universality of this vow. For they assert that the vow of continency cannot be cancelled save by something altogether contrary thereto, which is never lawful in any vow. But this is evidently false, because just as the practice of carnal intercourse is contrary to continency, so is eating flesh or drinking wine contrary to abstinence from such things and yet these latter vows may be a matter for dispensation for this reason others like innocent the fourth on the above decretal maintain that one may be dispensed even from a solemn vow of continency for the sake of some common good or common need as in the case of the example given above in objection 1 of a country being restored to peace through a certain marriage to be contracted. Yet since the Decreto quoted says explicitly that not even the sovereign pontiff can dispense a monk from keeping chastity, it follows seemingly that we must maintain that, as stated above in Article Ten, First Reply, conferring Leviticus 27, verses 9 and following, whatsoever has once been sanctified to the Lord cannot be put to any other use. For no ecclesiastical prelate can make that which is sanctified to lose its consecration, not even though it be something inanimate, for instance, a consecrated chalice to not be consecrated, so long as it remains entire. Much less, therefore, can a prelate make a man that is consecrated to God cease to be consecrated, so long as he lives. Now the solemnity of a vow consists in a kind of consecration or blessing of the person who takes the vow, as stated above in Article 7. Hence no prelate of the church can make a man who has pronounced a solemn vow to be quit of that to which he was consecrated, for example, one who is a priest to be a priest no more, although a prelate may, for some particular reason, inhibit him from exercising his order. In like manner, the Pope cannot make a man who has made his religious profession cease to be religious, although certain jurists have ignorantly held the contrary. We must therefore consider whether continency is essentially bound up with the purpose for which the vow is solemnized, because if not, the solemnity of the consecration can remain without the obligation of continency but not if continency is essentially bound up with that for which the vow is solemnized. Now the obligation of observing continency is connected with holy orders, not essentially, but by the institution of the Church. Wherefore it seems that the Church can grant a dispensation from the vow of continency solemnized by the reception of holy orders. On the other hand, The obligation of observing continency is an essential condition of the religious state, whereby a man renounces the world and binds himself wholly to God's service. For this is incompatible with matrimony, in which state a man is under obligation of taking himself to a wife, of begetting children, of looking after his household, and of procuring whatever is necessary for these purposes. Wherefore the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 7.33 that, He that is with a wife is solicitous for the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and he is divided. Hence the monk takes his name from unity in contrast with this division. Translators note, monk derives from the Greek word monos, meaning one. For this reason the church cannot dispense from a vow solemnized by the religious profession and the reason assigned by the decretal is because chastity is bound up with the monastic rule reply to objection one perils occasioned by human affairs should be obviated by human means not by turning divine things to a human use now a professed religious is dead to the world and lives to god so that he must not be called back to the human life on the pretext of any human contingency. Reply to Objection 2 A vow of temporal continency can be a matter of dispensation, as also a vow of temporal prayer or of temporal abstinence. But the fact that no dispensation can be granted from a vow of continency solemnized by a profession is due, not to its being an act of chastity, But because through the religious profession it is already an act of religion reply to objection 3 food is directly ordered to the upkeep of the person therefore abstinence from food may be a direct source of danger to the person and so on this count a vow of abstinence is a matter of dispensation on the other hand sexual intercourse is directly ordered to the upkeep, not of the person, but of the species. Wherefore, to abstain from such intercourse by continency does not endanger the person. And if indeed accidentally it prove a source of danger to the person, this danger may be obviated by some other means, for instance, by abstinence or other corporal remedies. Reply to Objection 4. A religious who is made a bishop is no more absolved from his vow of poverty than from his vow of continency, since he must have nothing of his own and must hold himself as being the dispenser of the common goods of the church. In like manner, neither is he dispensed from his vow of obedience. It is an accident that he is not bound to obey if he have no superior, just as the abbot of a monastery who nevertheless is not dispensed from his vow of obedience. The passage of Ecclesiasticus, which is put forward in the contrary sense, should be taken as meaning that neither fruitfulness of the flesh nor any bodily good is to be compared with continency which is reckoned one of the goods of the soul, as Augustine declares in Unholy Virginity 8. Wherefore it is said pointedly, of a continent soul, not of a continent body. Twelfth article. Whether the authority of a prelate is required for the commutation or dispensation of a vow. Objection 1. It would seem that the authority of a prelate is not required for the commutation or dispensation of a vow. A person may enter religion without the authority of a superior prelate. Now by entering religion, one is absolved from the vows he has made in the world even from the vow of making a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Therefore, the commutation or dispensation of a vow is possible without the authority of a superior prelate. Objection to further. To dispense anyone from a vow seems to consist in deciding in what circumstances he need not keep that vow. But if the prelate is at fault in his decision, the person who took the vow does not seem to be absolved from his vow, since no prelate can grant a dispensation contrary to the divine precept about keeping one's vows, as stated above in Article 10, Second Reply, as well as in Article 11. Likewise, when anyone rightly determines of his own authority that in his case a vow is not to be kept, he would seem not to be bound, since a vow need not be kept if it have an evil result, as was stated in Article 2, Second Reply. Therefore, the authority of a prelate is not required that one may be dispensed from a vow. Objection 3 further. If it belongs to a prelate's power to grant dispensations from vows, on the same count it is competent to all prelates, but it does not belong to all to dispense from every vow. Therefore, it does not belong to the power of a prelate to dispense from vows. On the contrary, A vow binds one to do something, even as a law does. Now the superior's authority is requisite for a dispensation from a precept of the law as stated above in the pars prima secunde, question 96, article 6, and in question 97, article 4. Therefore, it is likewise required in a dispensation from a vow. I answer that as stated above in articles 1 and 2, A vow is a promise made to God about something acceptable to him. Now, if you promise something to anyone, it depends on his decision whether he accept what you promise. Again, in the church, a prelate stands in God's place. Therefore, a commutation or dispensation of vows requires the authority of a prelate who, in God's stead, declares what is acceptable to God, according to 2 Corinthians 2.10. For I have pardoned, for your sakes, in the person of Christ. And he says significantly, For your sakes, since whenever we ask a prelate for a dispensation, we should do so to honor Christ in whose person he dispenses, or to promote the interests of the church which is his body. Reply to Objection 1. All other vows are about some particular works whereas by the religious life a man consecrates his whole life to God's service. Now the particular is included in the universal, wherefore a decretal on the vows says that man is not deemed a vow-breaker if he exchange a temporal service for the perpetual service of religion. And yet a man who enters religion is not bound to fulfill the vows, whether of fasting or of praying and the like, which he made when in the world because by entering religion he dies to his former life and it is unsuitable to the religious life that each one should have his own observances, and because the burden of religion is onerous enough without requiring the addition of other burdens. Reply to Objection 2 Some have held that prelates can dispense from vows at their will for the reason that every vow supposes as a condition that the superior prelate be willing. Thus it was stated above in Article 8 that the vow of a subject, for example, of a slave or a son, supposes this condition. If the father or master consent, or does not dissent, and thus a subject might break his vow without any remorse of conscience whenever his superior tells him to. But this opinion is based on a false supposition, because a spiritual prelate being not a master, but a dispenser, his power is given unto edification, not for destruction, according to 2 Corinthians 10.8. And consequently, just as he cannot command that which is in itself displeasing to God, namely sin, so neither can he forbid what is in itself pleasing to God, namely works of virtue. Therefore, absolutely speaking, man can vow them, But it does not belong to a prelate to decide what is the more virtuous and the more acceptable to God. Consequently, in matters presenting no difficulty, the prelate's dispensation would not excuse one from sin, for instance, if a prelate were to dispense a person from a vow to enter the religious life without any apparent cause to prevent him from fulfilling his vow. But if some cause were to appear, giving rise at least to doubt, He could hold to the prelate's decision whether of commutation or of dispensation. He could not, however, follow his own judgment in the matter, because he does not stand in the place of God, except perhaps in the case when the thing he has vowed is clearly unlawful and he is unable to have recourse to the prelate. Reply to Objection 3 Since the sovereign pontiff holds the place of Christ throughout the whole Church, he exercises absolute power of dispensing from all vows that admit of dispensation. To other and inferior prelates is the power committed of dispensing from those vows that are commonly made and frequently require dispensation, in order that men may easily have recourse to someone. Such are the vows of pilgrimage, fasting and the like, and of pilgrimage to the Holy Land, are reserved to the sovereign pontiff. End of question 88. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.